Welcome to A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends. We share good news and godly wisdom to empower you to be the salt and light in every season of life. In this episode, Glenn Burris explores with Doug how keeping the long view and setting our hearts on God's spiritual kingdom equips us to sow seeds and build a godly legacy that will last far into the future. As you listen, consider what decisions are before you. When you can, write them down and ask God to give you His perspective for each situation. Commit to doing what furthers His purposes, even if it appears to be at the expense of your own. In the long run, you will reap a reward that far outweighs the personal cost. After this episode, check out our show notes on your favorite streaming platform and visit awardandseasonpodcast.org to download a free 30-day devotion that will encourage you to draw closer to the Lord. If you've gleaned anything from this podcast, consider paying it forward with a gift at somebodycares.org. Now let's join our host, Doug Stringer. It's my great pleasure today to have Glenn Burris, Jr., who is the former president of the Foursquare Churches International. Glenn, thanks for being with us today. You're welcome, Doug. And what a great focus of a target and subject is transformational leadership, because I think that's what the gospel's always been about. One of my favorite verses is this, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom and liberty. And so I think there is something that happens when the Holy Spirit is engaged in a moment with us personally, uh, with us corporately as a church, in the world. But wherever He puts His footprint, something uh, of dynamism happens. Uh, we see it throughout the Scriptures, and we all have testimony of how that's happened in our own lives. There's something about a net that works, and it's not just about titles because it's more about function. uh, You really have served in a very apostolic role and still do, even though you retired as being president of the Foursquare denomination, but in in an apostolic role in the sense that, like Cheon put it, and as one of our guests a while back, uh, Romans 1, 1, that says, Paul, an apostle, a bondservant. That really means servant leadership, doesn't it? And And you've really epitomized that and exemplified servant leadership to many of us over the years. So I thank God that you're with us today and you'll be sharing from your heart. And also whatever God's put on your heart in the area of transforming leadership, because you've had to live that out. It's not something you've just studied or got a degree in, although you have all that. But it's something you've actually lived out through the crucibles of experience as well. And have seen the kingdom of God in the midst of negative news, the kingdom of God continues to advance. And the gospel still is the good news, and the gospel still continues to reach the nations. Yeah, what a powerful uh, opportunity. You know, I was I just recently discovered the Statue of Liberty, uh, something about it I'd never known before. Most of us know that iconic statue, and we remember it in the harbor there. New York has the torch and the tablet and the crown, uh, Lady Liberty. But, Doug, I'd never known that at the feet of Statue of Liberty are chains that are broken. And mm-hmm. so when that artist put that gift together for the United States and kind of um, affirmation of the document Abraham Lincoln signed, the Emancipation Proclamation, they were making a statement. There's no liberty without being set free from something. So I think transformation is from something to something. So when we understand those things, I think the effect of the transformation is so much more powerful. That's a great segue into my first question for you, Glenn. And you were talking about the breaking of the bonds and standing at the Statue of Liberty. Uh, I love the scripture, Galatians 5, verse 1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ has set you free, and be no longer entangled in the yokes of bondage. That one verse has so much unpacking when you consider the extreme liberty that we've had because of the high cost of love, that was paid on the cross of Calvary, that gives us not self, just salvation, but healing and liberation and deliverance and freedom in so many areas. Glenn, what's your journey in coming to the revelation of the work of the cross and finding that liberty in Christ? Somewhere along the line, Doug, either you discover it or you keep uh, suffering the consequences of not embracing it, you know, and making decisions that are in the flesh. And even though we all work hard, we all have goals, we have dreams, we have visions of what ministry can be and how we can contribute. 
unless that's intertwined with the leading of the Lord, uh, Jesus said, I'm about the will of my Father. So something about his journey tied him to his greatest priority was making sure that he was doing the will of God. And so I think early in my ministry, uh, I was a senior pastor at 23 in, in South Georgia, and Debbie and I were pretty miserable. And But I think this moment defined something for me, Doug, and became a anchor for me regarding of how God worked with people and worked with me. We'd become pretty miserable and we wanted to move back to the Carolinas to be near our family. And I was offered a job to come be the district youth guy. And so I accepted it, resigned my church, came to a district conference, was announced as a new youth guy. Everybody was happy. We were happy. And my wife was at home packing. And as I sat down after that announcement, the Lord said to me, you never asked me about this decision. Man, that was an awakening. Nobody else heard the voice, uh, only me. But I had to make a decision at that point, Doug, would I listen to the voice of the Lord, even though it might mean for me retracing a decision and even maybe a little bit embarrassment? Um, I was actually more afraid of my wife because she's home packing. So I have to call her and tell her we're not leaving. But that decision, I believe, Doug, shaped the rest of my life because I believe at that point God said, I can trust him if I speak to him. We all know we can trust God. I think the question is, can he get our attention? And mm -hmm. so I think transformation begins by listening and learning before you lead. Sometimes we move people right into leading, but I think unless we teach leaders and mentor them and to what it means, like Samuel uh, learned from the priest how to listen to the voice of the Lord so that he said, speak, Lord, your servant is listening. And then the word says, not one of his words fell to the ground. So I think that's a key of transformational leadership is learning to listen to the voice of the Lord. I love that story of Samuel, because I think that <laughs> I'm not the young Samuel that was trying to hear the voice of God as a, as a youth, um, but I'm that older Samuel now that's trying to find those and call out destiny out of the, the next generation. I know that's always been in your heart as I've been a part of what's called the Bridge Summit and trying to bridge the generations. And, and you've really had that heart, even in transition in the denomination that you led for Square, in trying to bring an, uh, an intentionality of bringing young leaders and connecting them to mentors who would not limit their passion and vision, but help to empower them so they could walk and to finish well as their journey goes forward. How old were you when you actually had that initial encounter with God? My dad was a pastor, so I was a PK. So at about seven, I distinctly remember the Sunday that I walked to the altar and gave my heart to Jesus at the conclusion of one of my dad's messages. I'll tell you, summer camps really impacted me in terms of just my walk with the Holy Spirit, my sense of call, my sense of camaraderie with young leaders. You know, you get people away from the normal effects of the world, and all of a sudden you, you can kind of hear from God a little easier. And so camp was a very pivotal time in my life of really hearing from God. And so then I went to Bible college, and it was there that I met my beautiful wife, Debbie. And it's been a journey, Doug. I, I think life is more about process. You know, a lot of people want to get to the place where they can make decisions. After looking back over the last 45 years of my life, I think the most important thing you can do is be going in the right direction. I think decisions are important, but if you're just about making decisions, but you're going in the wrong direction, having the authority to make those decisions, even making those decisions aren't necessarily eternal or powerful. Remember when Jesus was offered to his first miracle to benefit himself, turn these stones into bread. I think that served for me as a powerful example that he would not use his own authority to benefit himself. In fact, his first miracle was turning the water into wine and blessing so many. Of course, he was responding to his mom, and you can't really turn your mom down at that point. But I do think that those points in our life where we realize that God is investing something in us to give away, to share with others, that it isn't just about us. And when the church has done that, you and I talked this week uh, briefly about the Jerusalem Council, that pivotal moment in the life of the early church when they were struggling, just a handful of people, and yet they met at the first time as a council, 
they debated and discussed, and it was James who stood up in the middle of that and said, let's remember what God has said. He's promised to Amos to bless the nations. So obviously God's heart's for the world. Secondly, look what he's presently doing among the Gentiles. And then thirdly, so what should we decide that intersects where God is going? So what has he said? What is he doing? And where is he going? And I think when we can establish those things in our leadership circle, we'll get the same results when they said it seems good to us and the Holy Ghost. So it was at that point that the church moved beyond Jerusalem and really began to have a global mindset and open the door for the Gentiles. What a powerful moment. I mean, as powerful as all the moments was of Jesus being on earth, that moment of them seeking the Lord together and discovering God's future direction opened doors that no man could shut. Amen. And as a result of that calling in your life and this life message that God has given you, today, even though you're no longer the president for a square, it's still in your heart, and even in our conversation of the day, to see this emerging generation be empowered so they can finish their race well. How do we persevere in our leadership? And one of those things is we all are met with unexpected detours. There's moments that we didn't expect. No leader expects to go through trials or, or difficulties or betrayal. And yet, how do you persevere through unexpected detours? Have there been unexpected detours and trials that you've had to overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony? Sure. I don't know how much time you have this morning, but I can talk to you about <laughs> some detours. From being a young pastor, Debbie and I came back from vacation once, and some people had backed into our front yard and emptied our entire house out while we were gone. They backed a U-Haul in and stole all of our stuff. In fact, our neighbor saw them do it. And so I asked her later, why didn't you call the police? She said, there've been so many pastors in and out of here. I thought you were moving already. <laughs> Two weeks later, we discovered who broke in our house. I ended up going to the house of one of the young men. He was on parole. He and another guy got convicted to set for seven years, but he wrote me from prison and he said, Glenn, no one has ever forgiven me in my life for anything. And he said, I just wanted to write you and let you know since our conversation and my conviction, I've asked Jesus to come into my heart. Doug, I think the biggest lesson I've learned out about detours is to put your hope in the long term, not the short term. If you're, all your energy is about correcting the immediate, you're going to be very frustrated because God's up to something that's really longer term. It may be weeks, months, years. I'll never forget when Foursquare, I was a district supervisor, and Foursquare changed their structure. I was at the board meeting when that actually happened. I was a guest of the board meeting. And when they said the districts are done, we're doing something different. I walked out of that meeting, Doug, realizing I, was, I wasn't being fired, but I was being let go in the sense that I no longer had a, a role with Foursquare. I went home to our district. I mean, it was devastating news. I, mean, I had a staff of 11 I remember walking in the door and I said, you know, if God called you here to this office, then God's going to serve your future. And so I didn't know what my future was for six months, but I ended up losing my role as a district supervisor. And the next call was from the president who asked me to come to LA to be the general supervisor of all of Foursquare. So, but it was that six months that Debbie and I committed ourselves to support leadership we didn't know what God was up to, but we didn't panic, Doug. Our response wasn't temporal. And I, I think that's the challenge we have is that we have temporal responses. I mentioned to you the other day that we oftentimes put on the armor of the world rather than the armor of God. So rather than shoes of peace, we put on shoes of divisiveness and strife. And so we never get what's intended during spiritual warfare to happen because we've taken up different weapons than we've taken up carnal weapons rather than spiritual weapons. So I think that's just one of the biggest detours of my life that Debbie and I had a chance to, you know, everybody who felt sorry for us to say, oh yeah, they don't know what they're doing. But instead, Debbie and I come back and said to everybody, we, we, we serve 10 states. We're going to honor our leaders we're going to trust God with our future because I was modeling something for them as a pastor. They would, 
encountered detours at some point or a closed door. What did Paul do when he encountered closed doors? You know, obviously the Holy Spirit stopped him from going to certain places and eventually led him to the fulfillment of that goal to take the gospel to the rest of the world. So I think we have to look at closed doors as opportunities, Doug, not as defeats, but as God redirecting our life. And so I never would be here if that detour hadn't happened. To quote you again, you said, put your energy in the long term rather than in the short term. And it reminds me also of our friend Roger Parrott, who's the president of Bellhaven University. He wrote a book many years ago called The Long View. And I thought that was so good because we have to get this capacity to look beyond the immediate challenge or circumstance or obstacle hold to the promise of God and have the ability to look into the long view rather than what we're going through. And I saw a quote the other day that gave me credit. I learned from Dr. Evan Lewis Cole, who said, champions are not those who never fail, but those who never quit. Winners only see where they're going, not what they're going through. So somebody put a picture of me from the Christian Men's Network with me with saying that quote. And I (laughs) messaged uh, Joanne Cole Webster and said, Wow, I learned that from Dr. Cole. She goes, well, he probably borrowed it from somebody, so it's all yours now. I said, okay, I take it. So, you know, the powerful scripture, Doug, that says, who for the joy set before him. Yes. And that's right. the world. So that's Jesus modeled taking the long-term view, not the short-term view. Short-term views are filled with panic, anxiety, fear, bitterness, resentment, but long-term has a very different approach to it. You know, bitterness is the only sin that is said to have a root in it. And so that's what happens when we look with short range vision. We only see the immediate pain. It's like going through surgery. You know, if I only observe the few days after surgery versus the long-term view, then I'm going to be terribly disappointed. So somehow vision has to be beyond the whole point of Abraham. He saw the things that were not as though they were. I mean, here's a guy before the law, before the Messiah, before anything, God saw a man who was willing to look into the future and imagine, even if he couldn't identify what the future was, even if we can't see the future, we can imagine God is already there. That's the confidence I have today that God's already in the future. During difficulties, attitudes, the kind of attitudes we we adhere to are important. And I remember Wayne Cadero wrote a book, I think it was called Attitudes That Attract Success. And he gives a lot of examples of that. And of course, Albert Einstein said that the weakness of attitude will always become a weakness of character. Mm. And so attitude, I think, for leadership is so important that we stay in proper alignment with the Lord and not let the noise pollution and things that external stressors distract us from our destination to lead by servant leadership but attitudes are so important. It's, it's the attitude of our hearts that can really affect our leadership and get us off balance. Give us a couple of practical things that we can do in the midst of what we're going through to keep your alignment and keep your attitude on the Lord. It's a great uh, question, Doug, and a, and a great point. I think practically I'm reminded of the time where David, you remember when David's men were kind of disrespected by Nabal. So he strapped on his sword and he was headed to balance the scales. And Abigail intercepted him. And and her question was, haven't you always taught us the battle belongs to the Lord? But now you're taking this battle into your own hands. So which is it, David? Which future, this is a great question, which future king will lead Israel? One that straps on his sword when there's a problem or one who believes that the battle belongs to the Lord? So I remember a time, Doug, when I was a young pastor, this was not in Georgia, this was in North Carolina. I had left the church that night, I'd turned on the heat. Uh, that's when you live beside the church, right? And so you're the maintenance guy and the and and everything. So um, I don't know who designed this church, but it wasn't designed very well because you had to turn off the lights on the platform and go all the way back through a dark church to, to get out of the church. But I never wasted any time. But I remember this particular night, I got back to the church I, or to the door. I turned around and I saw a dark mist over the sanctuary and it felt to me just evil. And so uh, I, I stretched out my hands and for an hour I, I prayed in the spirit. When I left, I went home next door, sit down. This about 1130 at night, my phone rang. This guy said, hey, I knew who he was. He said, my wife and I want to come over to see you. Well, it was a late Saturday night. And I'm going, you know, is this really necessary? Yes, it is. 
They came over to my house, gave me the specific time that I was praying in the sanctuary. She was sitting on the couch at home with a handgun in her lap, wanting to take her life. And she said, something kept me from following through. Doug, sometimes when we run into places, we have to have this spiritual awareness that there's this invisible kingdom that's going on. And I think if I could encourage people today, it it would be, we get so dragged down into the visible kingdom, we have to fight to get to the invisible kingdom where real life is happening, real changes, real and authority. And so I think that's what I would, would share as a practical way of saying we come to places where, where there's collision, but there's always a spiritual exit strategy or a spiritual warfare strategy. And we want to do it in the natural, but God's calling this remnant of people, I believe, into a supernatural response. And when we live at that level So every morning it should be, Lord, I don't want to be driven by the things that I see with my natural eye. Lord, take me down the path of things that you see today. Mm. I told somebody the other day, I think it was Dr. Hicks, who used to say, you know, when we pray, we'd say, God bless what I'm doing today. But Dr. Hicks said, I changed the way I pray. I said, God, what are you doing today? I want to join that because I know that will be blessed. You're filled with so much, not just knowledge, but experiential wisdom. And I appreciate that. And years ago, I read a material by Dr. Robert Clinton at Fuller Theological Seminary that 70% of Christian leaders historically did not finish the race well. Hmm. And I'm thinking, well, my goodness, it's been an intentionality for me to glean from men like you, from women that have gone before us, that have, have paved the way that I can see some commonalities of their leadership beyond their intellect, knowledge, you know, the, the functions of what they do, because we can have a great mega church, we can have a great business or organization and still not finish the race well, because somewhere there's a weakness of attitude or a lack of character, and no leader sets out to fail. No pastor says, I can't wait to get in the pastorate so I can fail. But things happen in life that become discouragements and distractions that keep us from our destination. So the things that you're sharing with us, are, I think, are so vital and important for those of us that are really listening. Just like something you said a little bit ago, and, and Pastor Hamby wrote down, he said, wow, bitterness is the only sin that is said to have a root in it. When you said that, that resonates because it's so true. There's things that we allow in, and we don't realize it's there's festering. And by the time we recognize it, we've been in a detour that we're way out of alignment of where we're supposed to be. So thank you for that. A few years ago, I was going through my chemo at the time, and you wrote something, and I jotted this down. I don't have the exact date, but you wrote down, and this is your quote, in the heat of the American Civil War, one of President Lincoln's advisors said he was grateful that God was on the side of the Union. Lincoln replied, sir, My concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. And then you quoted out of Joshua chapter 5. There is an encounter between Joshua and a man with a a drawn sword. Joshua inquires whether he supports the enemy or whether he supports Joshua. And the reply surprised Joshua when the answer was, neither. I'm on the Lord's side. And you went on to talk about that. Would you unpack that a little bit? Because we live in such a divisive racial, political, divisive world today. We have all kinds of things that are knocking the wind out of us, taking our strength and our joy from us. It's hard to keep your vision of joy when you have so many things pulling on us and practical and spiritual things. And then how do we discern how to look beyond the natural to keep focused on what's happening in in the unseen realm? Boy, this is a a really important uh, journey, uh, Doug, for the church to get right. I would say uh, I start with the um, directive that Paul gave to the church at Corinth when he said, you've been given the ministry of reconciliation. That word means to take things that are broken and pulled apart and fix them and put them back together. Rather than have answers, sometimes I would ask questions like, are we people of peace? Because if peace is a weapon 
then I have to ask myself, am I a peacemaker? Am I doing what the scripture says that as much as it depends on me, be at peace with everyone? Sometimes we are, uh, we've gotten into a mode where it's an us versus them versus starting simply with John 3.16. It says, let's start with God loves the world. So if he loves the world, then how do I engage people who disagree vehemently with God or even with his word or with my particular principles or values? And I think unless the church is initiating that reconciliation, remember Jesus went to Zacchaeus' house and everybody was mad because he was at the home of a sinner. Jesus was having a conversation with him and saying, Zacchaeus, you're a son of Abraham. You're not living out your inheritance. And all of a sudden, Zacchaeus' world changed. So I'm wondering how many of us are helping point people to the future that they could be living in rather than just criticizing them for the present that they're actually living in. So I think that there is um, just some practical things we can do as a church. We, we got to be surrounded by people who don't think like us, who, who aren't like us. Jesus was constantly um, criticized because he engaged people on a regular basis. I mean, he was inclusive in terms of uh, the company he kept. He wasn't a man who lived like sinners, but he was a man who sat with them. He was a man who loved them. He, his enemies were called his friends. So can that be said about us? In the heat of battle, what is said about, you talk about Lincoln, uh, there's a great book called Team of Rivals, where he intentionally chose people that were of a different political foundation because he recognized their competency of leading the nation. And I understand that one of those men that he had the fiercest competitiveness with politically was a man who showed the most compassion on Lincoln's son after Lincoln was assassinated. So he, he recognized the character of Lincoln. And so sometimes we want to debate about the wrong things. And so we forget that at the end, the value of people who they are to God. And we have to be building bridges. And if and if we're building something over here that doesn't matter, we're building systems, institutions. You know, there was a bridge, I don't know if you've ever seen it, called the Cholateca Bridge in Honduras, that when Hurricane, I think it was Hurricane Mitch came through and changed the course of the river. So here's this beautiful bridge that goes nowhere because the river is not under it anymore. Sometimes I think we build stuff, we put so much energy and time, but it doesn't lead us anywhere. It, it doesn't become a, a long-term spiritual solution. And I think what Jesus did, you said um, how we finish well. Jesus understood the value of strategic absence. So when he, the ascension, which we don't talk about a lot, created a vacuum that allowed the Holy Spirit to fill in men's hearts, and then together they became this force. Uh, and sometimes we think it's so much about us, but God really wants us to intentionally have strategic absences so that his Holy Spirit can come in and really multiply the influence under us rather than have it all depend on us. So I'm just a believer and wait long enough and everything's going to change. So what are you depositing in people that will live longer than your direct influence? Uh, I was in the Netherlands recently and discovered about this. I knew about it, but I didn't think about that she was Dutch, Corey Tinboon watchmaker's daughter rescued 800 Jews. And now you're thinking, okay, she ended up in prison. She, she got out, thankfully, and had a wonderful testimony. But how many thousands of families, Doug, were affected by the 800 who survived? If we can plant seeds in our ministry that live beyond, again, that's living beyond the present and leading for the future, then I think we'll make different decisions than we're making right now. I remember her book, uh, Tramp for the Lord, in my early days, I was in my 20s, and it so resonated with me for various reasons. One, I, there was a short period of time, and I was a teenager, I was living on freight trains and hitchhiking up and down Oregon, Washington, Oregon, and California. But that book really resonated with me, being able to discern moments and not allow circumstances to dictate to you your response, 
but realizing every distraction is really a, a divine opportunity for God to do something. You had shared earlier about discernment because, you know, one thing I think many of us forget is criticism or judgmentalism is not a gift of the Spirit, but discernment is. And there's a distinction between discernment and criticism or discernment and judgmentalism. Uh, it's not that we give up our convictions, because I'm, I'm a man of deep convictions biblically and, and even in my political views, but that doesn't mean I have to create a schism between opportunity for people to find the inheritance. And I've told, even back in the days of backward masking and friends of mine who wrote books about it, I agreed with the premise, but if we only focus on the devil's work and not on what's better, people will never find out what's better. So I'd rather point them to the presence of God through worship and through the presence of God. And in that place, God disseminates all the, the negativity. And we begin to have our eyes open. Going, oh my goodness, what have I been missing? If we don't direct, if, the, if there's a problem, we don't direct them to the answer or the solution, which is Christ himself, then they will never find that inheritance, will they? Something burned into me early in my ministry. I remember coming across the story of Elijah and the widow. And uh, there was a thought that came to me toward the end of that story. And it's that oftentimes we develop the spirit of a widow. Now, my mom was a widow. She lived without my dad for about 12 years before she went to be with Jesus. But if you have the spirit of a widow, which assumes that the best days of your life have already come, right? I mean, and, and there's going to be a lack and you're dependent on others. And the Lord showed to me, what if instead of having the spirit of the widow, you had the spirit of a bride where you assume the best days of your life were ahead of you, not behind you. And Jesus didn't call us his widow. He called us his bride. The church is the bride of Christ. So, I mean, you've seen the joy of a bride on the day of her wedding because she's thinking the future is everything. And so I think getting back to what you said earlier, attitude, when we're going through life, are we thinking, you know, so many people worry about the past and present. I think God pulls us into the future to imagine a world and a life that he's in, that he's directing. And so I think the early church eventually aligned themselves where, with where God was going. And I think when we do that, and it may not be everybody, Doug, but I think a remnant of people who align themselves with what the Holy Spirit is saying is going to be the group of people that God is going to empower, use, favor, multiply. I, I just believe that with the bottom of my heart. And then you talked about inheritance because I love Colossians 1 verse 12 that says, give thanks to the Father who has qualified us to receive the inheritance of the children of the light. And it goes on to talk about because of the son of his love, which is Jesus, who all things were made to, through, for, and by him, the preeminent one, all dominions and principalities and kingdoms and rulerships are subject to Jesus. Yep. And so there's something about inheritance. Now, I remember years ago, Jack Hanford was sharing when he received an inheritance from his mother, uh, he and Jim and his, his family, they received an inheritance, not because they did anything good, not because somehow they were special, it's because their last name was Hayford. And so that's so true for many of us that we, we, when we come into this incredible relationship with God through his son, Jesus Christ, that, that we have an inheritance that we can't own, we, we, can't, we don't deserve, we can't steal, we can't try to take, it belongs to us. We don't have to take by force what already belongs to us. Okay. And there is this incredible inheritance. And I know it, for you personally that Jack Hayford, of course, has influenced many of our lives, but you have a very intimate relationship with Jack Hayford. What a, just an incredible uh, ambassador for Christ. And still today, I come across leaders from every denomination that have been, have gleaned from and learned from Pastor Jack Hayford. But you had a personal relationship and still do that transcends just a, you know, business side of Foursquare. You actually had this, a mentoring relationship where he was like a mentor in your life and, and a, a huge influence in your life. Yeah, I had five years. I mean, I've known Jack for a long time, but we had five years where I worked right under him and we only lived 10 miles apart. So Jack would regularly call me at 4 a.m. Now that he was an early riser. I was telling that to somebody one day and they said, don't answer the phone. I said, what do you mean don't answer the phone? When Jack calls, you answer the phone. But I'll remember the, the morning he called me sometime between 4 and 4.30 and he said, Glenn, get to my house right now. I have a confession to make and I need for you to serve me communion. And I'm going, 
oh dear God, what is Jack Hafer going to confess and what am I going to learn firsthand? So I got dressed and I drove over to their house and Jack opened the door. There he was in his bathrobe and pajamas and Anna was sitting at the table with her bathrobe and pajamas. There was communion on the table. And so Jack sat down and he confessed something to me that he thought he had a sense of violation with someone. And I'm thinking to myself, I wouldn't have told anybody about that. I mean, that, that's not that big a deal. But I said, okay, Jack, and we prayed. And I served in communion. On the way home, I said to the Lord, Lord, I don't get it. And the Lord said to me, Jack will never let anything stand between me and him. And that's why I bless him the way I do. Well, wow. you're talking about a lesson for a young disciple to learn. This man won't let anything stand between me and him. Those are the kinds of things that you don't just admire a man for what he's done. You really admire him for who he is. And I think if the church is going to get back to having real influence, it's going to be because of not what we do, but who we are. And when people see the character and see the genuineness and not the shallowness, but the quality in our neighborhoods, uh, at the stores, in our businesses. And, and by the way, Doug, you, you're aware of this as well, and you've, you've lived this life, but it, it really is a day to empower the whole church. Mm -hmm. You know, it was a Lausanne quote years ago, taking the whole gospel to the whole world by the whole church. Um, and I, I think that Billy Graham said that may be the last great revival of the church is when the whole church, mm. every member is taking the whole gospel to the whole world. You know, we've been shaken here in the last couple of years, but I mean, think of how many non-Christians our leaders intersect with every day. Whether Zoom or whether it's a grocery store or a department store or in the neighborhood, we have to get back to being the church, not just the church on a, at a site or a location or an organization, but the church, which is let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify God. That will be, in my opinion, the mark of one of the last great moves of the church. You know, that's a, a great point, because even when people ask me sometimes, they go, how in the world did you meet with so-and-so and so or that Muslim president or, or that athlete or that person? And I think about it, I think, well, nothing I really did, except that I did Matthew 5, 16, and that I, I tell people I'm like the Japanese Forrest Gump. I just showed up in the picture. I made myself available. It wasn't because I was smart, because I had something to offer. But people are looking for authenticity. And I, I remember, and in, in, I think it was in 2000, uh, the pastor Jack uh, was at a pastor's gathering in Houston. From that, he invited me to come speak at Love LA. And while we were doing a, a speak at Love LA, he looked at, at that time from Regal Gospel Light Publishers, and he said, you need to publish this young man. He's got something to say. Mm. And uh, he said, well, I want to publish him. And I said, well, nobody's going to read my book. I said, unless, Jack, you write the forward. Don't read it because you wrote the forward. And <laughs> so in 2001, we came out with the book at that time. It was called Passion for God, Compassion for Souls. And then later it became known as the, Somebody Cares, a Guide to Living Out Your Faith. And it just came back out with updates and extra chapters and updated version called Mending the Net, Bringing Hope in a Hurting World. And we kept Jack's forward because I felt like it was so significant at the time that it's more significant now than it was even when it was first written. Yep. And it really is about that because I find that for many of us, we end up in the conversations with people that we would have never thought, but our circumstances corporately have allowed us an opportunity to speak into their lives or to, to be able to share life with them that opens up their hearts to receive the message of the gospel. And time and time again, I've seen that happen. Even in the last couple of years through the pandemic, there's been so many opportunities to minister to people that way outside, instead of the church trying to get the community to come to church, the church has now had to go to the community in very creative ways. And what's happening is there is an engagement of dialogue, even with all the negative news, there is still really good news still happening in the midst of bad news. Absolutely. And Doug, your ministry is such a powerful example of just serving people, just whatever God's called you to do, you respond to need. You, you remind me a little bit of Moses 
where God said to him at the burning bush, hey, I'm going to Egypt to rescue my people. You want to go? And uh, finally, Moses said yes. But I think you've just always been willing to go where God said go. And because of that, I think doors have been opened. And no telling, Doug, how many thousands of people are going to be in heaven directly and indirectly because you said yes to take something that fed a hungry person clothed a cold person, or just gave somebody hope in the midst of a disaster. A couple of years ago, I was able to go to Panama. A pastor I know down there very well said, how would you like to visit Manuel Noriega in a Panama prison? And so I said, sure. And they said, well, I've got to write the government. I've never been able to get anybody in, but maybe I can get you in. So a year later, I get this letter from her, uh, along with the letter from the Panamanian government. Yes, you've been approved to visit Manuel Noriega. Well, what you don't what a lot of people don't realize is three Florida leaders, uh, three Texas leaders actually came to a Florida prison for two years to visit him and led him to Jesus. And he became radically saved. And by the time I met him, he was 83 years old, broken, humble, contrite. Fun story. He asked me that Sunday when I left him, I said, Manuel, can I pray for you? And he said, yeah. He said, pray that I'll get out of prison. And I'm going, oh, great. The one time I get to pray for a dictator, he asked me to get him out of prison. So I said, Lord, I don't know what your will is for Manuel, but uh, you hear his heart. He's He had a brain tumor and they were going to do surgery on it. He wanted to spend some time with his family. So we prayed that Sunday. I posted that on Facebook. Six days later, I get a call from Doug Anderson, Jack's son-in-law. He said, Glenn, I'm in Panama on a mission trip. They're letting Noriega out of prison. And I said, you're kidding. You know, have you ever prayed something and then God does something? You're going, oh, really? That really happened? They let him out of prison. He got to spend three months with his family in home arrest after like 23, 27 years. Went in for surgery and never made it out of surgery. Wow. But God gave him three months. His daughters have all come to Jesus go to one of our churches in Panama City at the University of Panama. I'll tell you, Doug, we just have to be ready to just care for people, love on people, serve them. I think that's the highest call of a Christian leader is just to serve people, pray for them, love them, be Jesus to them. You know, Jesus said, you, you said you did these miracles, but did you go to prison? Did you visit me when I really needed you. So I think we have to reevaluate sometimes our definition of what we consider to be activity that is the most honored by God. Amen. So you're telling these stories, which, you know, a lot of the world doesn't hear these kinds of stories. This is the good news in the midst of difficult news uh, in a world of bad news. There's still a lot of great things that God is doing that we don't ever hear about. I was looking at a word, and I, I kind of got this from Pastor Jack Hayford, you know, learning new words. And so uh, a few weeks ago, I was, I was going over a word called synchronicity and all these interconnected things that don't seem connected, but they are connected. Yep. And many times, even in, you said earlier on in our conversation, a difficult moment is just one of those things that's connected to things we don't see that God's up to. And just like you talked about with, with Noriega, there's components that are all fitting together, but you don't see it in the natural eye, but they're all connected, that synchronicity of God, where God, when he shows up in a suddenly, it's not because it was a suddenly to him, it's because all of a sudden we got a revelation of it, but it was already connected. God already went before us. He's already our rear guard. He's taking care of putting all these components together. And, and I just see that, uh, that for me, that's where I find my hope is holding on to the fact that it's not what I see, is staying connected to who I know and who knows me. Probably would conclude, unless you have some other questions, with this thought, and I'd be happy to respond to anything else. But in this latter season of my life, I'm, I was moved by this story of Paul, who has been led by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. And if you remember, he stops off at a, at a house, and they, they try to encourage him not to go to Jerusalem. Trouble awaits you there, and they're just going to they're gonna beat you, and they're probably going to take your life. And Paul says something interesting. He said, I've got to go to Jerusalem to make God known. And it doesn't seem in the natural that he was even thinking clearly, because he ends up in the Mamertine prison. He gets uh, beaten. Uh, he gets ultimately executed by Nero. And you're thinking, yeah, we told you, if you had stayed out of Jerusalem, you could at least encourage the churches 
visited a few more people, mentored a few more leaders. But what Paul knew was if you obey God, then the other side of your obedience, it's better to be obedient than even to sacrifice. Paul writes a few letters while he's in prison. I don't know if he knew that then, but imagine, Doug, thousands of years later, nobody knows what Nero wrote, but Paul wrote a few letters that today gets published 80 million times a year. And by the way, the country that shut down Christianity in the 50s now produced more Bibles than any nation in the world. Amity Publishing in China produces, I think, 40 to 50 million Bibles a year. So how an ironic plan of God to say, you're not going to stop the gospel. You just need to know how I'm going to do it, which isn't confined to your plans, your strategies, your ideas. And so I think there really is a great call to us today to hear from God, to know what the Spirit is saying to the church, like, like to the churches of Revelation. What is the Spirit saying to the church? And I think if we can discover that together, rather than filling our hearts and minds with what everybody else is saying, which, you know, we're spending an awful lot of time consumed by the media's interpretation of the world today. And I, I get that, but it somehow distracts and it dilutes, I think, the spiritual words we need to be hearing and listening to. So I've been spending more time in the Word uh, and in prayer and realizing the world's going to do what it does, but I want to do what Jesus has called me to do. And uh, you could get thrown in prison, beaten and executed, but what happens in those days could affect millions and live uh, until eternity. The lives we live before we enter the portals of eternity will determine the influence we leave for the future. Glenn, whatever is on your heart, would you close us out in some final thoughts and prayer? I guess a final thought would simply be um, to think about those final acts of Jesus on the cross. When he cared for his mother, he forgave those who had hurt him. He offered a pathway to paradise for the thief. And even though for a moment he wondered about being forsaken, he submitted his heart to God. And Doug, in that moment, something happened that caused a soldier to say, this must have been the Son of God. Mm. So my encouragement to us today is to say, we may feel trapped in situations. We may feel underwater. We may feel at a disadvantage. But it's those actions and those pressure moments that can actually help someone who hasn't yet discovered the joy of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the light of the gospel. So I think we just realize that wherever we go, we are a testimony. You said to me earlier, we defeat the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. So what is the word of our testimony? We, we don't have anything to do with the blood of the lamb except applying it and accepting it. But the word of our testimony is our response to that. It's how we live out what Christ has done. So your life is always about both of those, what God is up to and where I'm going with what he has done. My encouragement to you is just to realize, I, I mentioned to you that I went through a Chick-fil-A drive through this morning and some young lady said, Mr. Glenn, and they always personalize their service to you. But then she said, are you Glenn Burris? And are you the president, have been the president of Foursquare? And this young girl who lives in Canton, Georgia, came from one of our churches in Houston, Texas. I had no idea. I don't know her. I'm just going through a drive-through. And I'm just saying, God puts us in places where our testimony and our word will encourage people, give them hope, build bridges, or... We're going to be in a person who distances people from Jesus, who somehow make it harder for people to find God. It was the Jerusalem Council that says, let's make it easy. This is my final thought after before I pray. Let's make it easy for the Gentiles to find God. That should be our mantra every day. Lord, help me make it easy for people who don't know you to find you. Wouldn't that be a just an incredible personal mission? Help me to be a person that intersects with people who don't know you 
to find you. Help me make it easy for them to do that. So Jesus, I don't know what all those are. Maybe it's a it's a word of kindness. Maybe it's a, an extraordinary tip to a server. Maybe it's a kind word to someone in a restaurant or a grocery. Maybe it's um, offering to do something for our neighbor. Whatever it is, Jesus, you have tasked us to be representatives of you on planet Earth. And we live in a a world that's fragmented, that is angry, that in many ways has been victimized by one another. But Lord, that's why I think the first time you revealed yourself, it was Jehovah Rapha. You are the healer. You are the one that's coming in where there's brokenness, where there's pain, where there's injury, and you're choosing to rescue them. Lord, I want to be on that mission. That When I was a young person, that I heard that God, you're going to rescue the world. I still want to be a part of that. Every day, Jesus, lead me to people that you're rescuing. You've already worked with. Somebody else has planted a seed. Somebody else is watering it. Help me bring them to you, Lord, so that there's an increase in the kingdom. And we know then all of heaven would rejoice. Lord, thank you for Doug, uh, for Jody, for the ministry here. I thank you for just, Lord, the humility of this ministry, the sacrifice, the things that no one will ever know about, but heaven does. Heaven celebrates, heaven favors, heaven keeps opening doors for. And I pray that their ministry will see its greatest days in the future, that the doors, there will be open that no man can shut. There'll be resources released that even exceeded what our prayers have been. Because Lord, you said you'd do that. You'd do abundantly above all that we could ever ask or think. So, Lord, we entrust you. We trust you today. We believe in you. We believe in where you're going. We want to be a part of that journey. Lord, help us today to reflect you well. To a God who loves the world, may we be known as a person who loves them too. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's do what the words of Jesus says in the book of John when he says to disciples, Behold, look up from where from your own two feet and circumstances and see the fields are ripe and white unto harvest. This is our moment. This is the finest hour of the church in the midst of the most difficult times to let our light shine in such a way that they would see Christ in us. God bless everybody. And thank you, Pastor uh, Burris, again, for being with us. And we look forward to connecting with everybody in the future. God bless. Love you, Doug. Goodbye, everyone. We hope you enjoyed this episode of A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends and ask you to prayerfully consider supporting the ministry at somebodycares.org or by texting your donation amount to 805-422-7348. Please join us again for A Word in Season with Doug Stringer and Friends.